Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Jennifer Yedemeyeva, and today I'm with Dara Goldstein to discuss her marvelous new book, Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore, which is out this month from 10 Speed Press, an imprint of Random House. Dara has long been a favorite with Russophiles for her innovative classic cookbooks, such as Fire and Ice, which was nominated for a James Beard and the Art of Eating Awards, and A La Russe, which I imagine most Russian foodies have a well-thumbed and batter-spattered copy of, as I certainly do. To say nothing of The Georgian Feast, which was one of the first English-language cookery books to explore the marvelous food of the Caucasus. Not content to rest on these impressive laurels, Goldstein has gone back to Russia on a quest to distill the massive country's most quintessential flavors. I'm so delighted that it has brought Dara to the New Books Network. Dara, welcome. I'm so glad to be talking with you. Well, I'm delighted to to have you here. I'm such a fan of yours. Um, You've combined a very distinguished career in academia while also turning your interest in food and Russian culinary history into something of a parallel career. And I wonder if we could begin by you taking us through these separate but very intersecting journeys. I've always been interested in food. It's just something that I I was drawn to the kitchen. And when I started studying Russian in college and reading Russian literature, I was struck by how many references there were to food. I think part of it has to do with there was a lot of censorship in the 19th century. And so what, uh, you know, something erotic was perhaps sublimated through erotic descriptions of food, as you find particularly in Chekhov, also in in Gogol. Uh, When I started graduate school at Stanford in the early 70s, I decided I wanted to combine my interests and write about food in Russian literature because I felt as though many of the characters were brought to light through the foods they ate or uh, withheld from people. And I was basically told that I wasn't a serious person. (laughs) (laughs) It was not a serious topic. And so I wrote my dissertation on this amazing poet, Nikolai Zabolotsky, and I'm not sorry that I did that, but I couldn't let the food go. Mm-hmm. So even as I began my academic career at Williams, where I taught for 34 years, I continued to think about food and write about food in the popular press. And uh, beginning in the late 90s, I guess it was, I somehow wanted to bring my two worlds together. They just felt too disparate. And it was really an article that I wrote. I can't remember what year it came out, uh, sometime in the late 90s. I had discovered that the great 19th century French chef, Harem, had traveled to St. Petersburg on the invitation of Tsar Alexander I to cook for him. They had gotten to know each other in France during the Napoleonic Wars. And 
Karem arrived in St. Petersburg, I think it was 1819, and the czar was not waiting for him at the dock. And he was very <laughs> offended because, after all, he was a great French chef. And uh, he did not like what he found there, and he decided he didn't want to stay, but he couldn't get another boat back to France for two weeks. And so he wandered St. Petersburg, this glorious capital on the Baltic Sea. But according to him, it didn't have enough monuments. It didn't have enough verticality. It wasn't imposing enough for the capital of an empire. Mm. And uh, Karem had become famous for what were known as pièces montées, these beautiful constructions, uh, table ornaments that were quite grand, made of a certain kind of uh, marzipan sometimes, or sugar, or pastry. And he often did them in the style of monuments. Mm. And it turns out that when he was in St. Petersburg, he designed monuments for this city, not realizing, of course, it was built on a swamp and anything that was too heavy <laughs> and too vertical would slowly subside. Against all odds, Amherst College has a copy of his portfolio for monuments for St. Petersburg in its special collections. And I went in and I looked at them, I compared them to his pastry constructions and wrote what I thought is perhaps one of the best articles of my life about Karem <laughs> and pastry and Russia, and it combined all of my interests. And it was published in the Slavonic and East European Journal in London. And, you know, maybe 50 people read it. Uh -huh. And I thought, I have to do something that will bring my worlds together and also bring the worlds of other people together who are doing fascinating research that isn't necessarily read in academia. So that's mm -hmm. when I founded the journal Gastronomica. And then I started moving more fully into the food studies realm. And I, I should say that we I had on the show um, a couple of months ago the authors of Season Socialism, and I know you wrote the foreword for that. Yeah. Um, so I think that that um, your dream has come true that <laughs> that food has become part of the academic canon. It, would you say? I think it has, in that a lot of people are teaching food courses here and there. Mm -hmm. Graduate students can certainly feel free to investigate food in serious institutions and very serious dissertations, but it's still not uh, quite as mainstream as it could be because there are very few departments that are actually devoted to food studies. So right. uh, it still remains somewhat niche. Mm. Now, your interest in, in the Russian food scene, did that start when you were actually living there as a student or... Um... You're for, you first sort of started following it in literature, but when you actually lived in Russia for a time. I did. And it was during the uh, rather grim Soviet years. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so much that the food that was all around me was extraordinary. What was extraordinary was the street food, for one thing, the chebureki, if you remember those Crimean meat pies. Mm -hmm. uh, they're deep fried. And if you can think about being in Leningrad, which was the first place I went a long time ago in 1972, and it was 
November yeah. and it was gray <laughs> and cold. And then there were these steaming hot meat pies and there were yeah. ponchiki, which are uh, steaming hot donuts also lifted out of deep fat. Um, there were pinmini, which are the Siberian dumplings that are steamed. And again, it for me, it's the image of the steam in the cold and the smells of these foods on the street. So that was one thing that struck me because the stores were pretty empty then. But even more strongly, I was struck by this um, intense hospitality mm-hmm. on the part of the Russians that the more time I spent there, the deeper I recognized it to be and to, to lie at the very core of who they are and how they define themselves. So even when you know people would go to the Soviet Union on, uh, on travel jaunts and they'd come back and say the food is disgusting, <laughs> and it was, and there wasn't much food to be found. But if mm-hmm. you got to know people, they knew how to work the system. There was a very active bartering system. There was the black market, and tables were always beautifully spread with uh, whatever they were able to to procure. I, I often think that the um, <clears throat> the the setting the table and setting out all the zakuski, uh, the the hors d'oeuvres, the the sort of the massive spread, is is really an art form uh, for. Russian homemakers. It is. And it's so different from, say, the uh, more, uh, it's so different from the minimalism of the American dinner party table, Mm, which, you know, you're supposed to, or at least when I was growing up, (laughs) you were supposed to have a beautifully laid tablecloth and then you'd have candles and maybe you'd have a centerpiece with flowers and you'd have the table settings, but you didn't have total disarray in terms of dishes (laughs) piled one on top of each other down the length of the table, plus all the bottles of vodka and wine and juice and mineral water, just everything chaotic but abundant. But abundant and, yeah. and sort of welcoming in exactly. a way. Exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, you go back to Russia um, in your, for your latest book, um, Beyond the North Wind. And what inspires you to go back to Russia and indeed to the extreme north of Russia, which is difficult to get to and sort of the weather is, is a little inhospitable. Um, and it sounds, it sounds like a challenging journey. It was a challenging journey, especially for someone of the age of my husband and me, because he accompanied me for much of it. Uh, it was good for us. It was really wonderful because we put ourselves in uncomfortable situations a lot, but it was also enormously exhilarating. Part of it had to do with working on Fire and Ice, which was my previous cookbook, Classic Nordic Cooking. I had actually been thinking a lot about what it means to live in the North, in a place that is seen by outsiders as very, as you say, inhospitable and cold and dark and uh, not Mediterranean. The sun's not shining. You're not um, pulling copious uh, fruits off trees and herbs from the ground. And how do you live and how do you create deliciousness there? 
So in a way, this book is a natural sequence to that, just mm-hmm. moving further east. But I mm-hmm. concentrated in the, the extreme northwest of Russia. And the second part of that, um, the impetus for the book, was just thinking about how much has changed in my thinking from when I published A La Russe, which then became A Taste of Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it first came out in 1983. That's mm-hmm. how many years? It's 40 years or something like that. And my whole conception of what Russian food is has really evolved. Can that, you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So that yeah. book was really the dissertation I wanted to write. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is very academic, that book. I mean, I have cooked for it uh, from it for about two decades. And it's great because it's it's accurate and the recipes are wonderful <laughs> and all of the fantastic commentary on literature. But it's very academic. And this book is a big departure. I mean, I noticed that right away from the first chapter. It was very much more relaxed, um, leisurely, kind of meandering. You were, you seemed a lot more to lean into the subject matter and let it take over. Um, yeah, that's partly, that partly comes with age and not being a, a graduate student <laughs> or a young assistant professor. But mm-hmm. also, I just... Um, felt as though that book I needed to uh, establish my authority. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make sure that all the recipes were quote unquote authentic, not Mm -hmm. something I believe in that there is authenticity, but uh, the Kulibyaka, which is one of the great pies in the Russian repertoire. It's a multi-layered fish pie with uh, salmon and sturgeon and blini and and buckwheat and uh, mushrooms, and it's really glorious. Uh, My recipe for kulibyaka in that cookbook took nearly an entire day to make. Mm -hmm. And the one I have in this cookbook takes a couple hours, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was an attempt to get to uh, something more elemental, something simpler, something more basic without the overlay of Soviet deprivation or the haute cuisine that was so French influence of the 19th century. Those were basically the two kinds of recipes that I had in the first cookbook, plus foods from the then Soviet republics. Mm -hmm. So there were wonderful Georgian dishes, Uzbek plof, uh, lagman from Kazakhstan, and so on. This one, I stuck to Russia, the recipes uh, and the foods that and the techniques that people have been using for a good thousand years. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to go to the far north because that was never uh, under the Mongol domination. Not too many Westerners go there as opposed to, say, Moscow, St. Petersburg or, or points further south. So it seemed... Uh, less touched by outside influence. Do they have sushi in the extreme north? Because they have sushi everywhere else. (laughs) Yes, but it's so interesting that you ask about that, Jennifer, because there is something that is even better than Japanese sushi. I have a recipe for it in my book. It is stroganina, which Uh is shaved frozen salmon. In Russia, they tend to use a, a white fish called muksun, which we don't have access to. So salmon mm-hmm. is a very good substitute. 
But you take this fish, and if you're working in American kitchens, you can just take a nice hunk of salmon, freeze mm-hmm. it, and then take a very sharp knife and shave it thinly. And it is so much better than sashimi mm. because it's still frozen. So you Fantastic. get the experience of having these ice crystals kind of prickle on your tongue and melt. And it's just extraordinary. And you serve it with flavored salts. Oh. So I have recipe for a salt that you make from um, ground spruce tips. Or there's another one that is a very, uh, very old method of making salt from burnt, hard bread or oatmeal. Mm. And that's become that's actually becoming. I just experienced that in a um, in a in a kitchen recently. The sort of the charred um, dust. People are that's coming into the the mainstream cuisine. I think yes. But the and Russians so have they, been doing it for a very long time, as they of have been they have. fermenting, <laughs> you know, and they weren't talking about probiotics when right. they were layering their cucumbers or their mushrooms uh, with salt and allowing the lacto-fermentation to happen and create their marvelous pickles. They just knew that they were good for them and that they tasted good. And that it would keep the, the cucumbers fresh. Yes. And so are these the are these the quintessential flavors of Russia? Is this what you went on a, a journey to discover? Um, those were some of them. So it mm-hmm. really has a lot to do with fermentation, a mm-hmm. taste for the sour. Uh, and whenever I say sour, you know, you see people's faces sort of pucker <laughs> or look <laughs> of displeasure because that's not a positive word in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Russian, that taste is really everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a wonderful book by a, a Russian chemist named um, Engelhardt, uh, who was exiled in the 1860s to his estate in uh, the Smolensk area. And he observed the peasants and he wrote about their need for sour things. So if you think sourdough, rye bread, and these Mm -hmm. uh, sour pickles and kvass, which is Mm -hmm. the kind of uh, lightly alcoholic, uh, small beer-like drink that they make, again, from fermented black bread. Um, All of these things are, I would say, part of that elemental Russian taste. Cultured dairy products. Mm-hmm. We think of yogurt. Uh, they have a whole wide range of, of different kinds of, of cultured dairy. There is um, whole grains, uh, buckwheat, uh, rye, barley in particular, that you cook into different porridges. And then think about the mushrooms and the berries that also come from the earth. So there's an earthiness to the flavors. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Uh, so I'm getting hungry just just thinking about. It. <laughs> well, so much lunchtime. <laughs> I was I was um I I tried one of your recipes right away the the marinated smelts because my husband loves smelts but he usually deep fries them and makes a real mess. So this has has made my life just quintessentially much easier. So I want to thank you for those and and um, that I think combines a lot of those tanginess um, and the earthiness of the smelts together. It's just marvelous. Um, he he devoured a two liter jar in in about three days. So. That makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> now you your book is filled with um, pictures of very interesting looking people. Did you just kind of put yourself into their kitchens, or did you have introduction? How did that all come together? I'm so glad you mentioned that because if you look at fire and ice, there are only two people pictured in it. There's a fisherwoman, and then there's a, a farmer, a very mm-hmm. handsome young farmer in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for this book, it was extremely important to me that we had pictures of people with appealing faces who were smiling, who didn't look evil. I really <laughs> wanted to humanize Russia for readers mm-hmm. and show that there are regular folks there. So I was very lucky to... Um, be introduced to uh, a number of people in Murmansk, Murmansk, mm-hmm. um, and through them, you know how the Russian network works. Once you meet one person, it's this generosity of spirit, and they say, oh, you need to meet this person. Mm-hmm. So one person led to another. Um, in the Arkhangelsk region, I didn't have a connection, but I wrote a number of emails, which, you know, when I was writing my first book, there wasn't email or barely Uh was. So the fact that I could write emails to tourist agencies was sort of mind boggling in itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very few of them answered, but uh, one did. And they were so excited about my project. And they had been working on trying to create a kind of gastronomic tour of the region, mainly for Russians. Ah. But they took me under their wing and uh, made it possible for us to visit these remote villages. That that was part of the challenge of the trip because uh, the roads are bad and the uh, you know you can't just call an Uber or a Lyft, or (laughs) and we didn't want to hire a private driver and live mm-hmm. like foreigners. We wanted right. to see what it was like for people who live there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, doors just opened up beautifully. Mm-hmm. I think that food is one of the best ways to sort of find your way into Russian culture. Um, you know, a lot of people come with uh, a passion for the literature or the history uh, or space exploration, but food opens the door so much more smoothly, I, I find. Um, and I, I think foodies are just foodies all the, all the world around. Yes, and I think that's one of the sad things about that whole Soviet era. When people went to the Soviet Union, had bad food, felt disgruntled, yes. <laughs> uh, and didn't uh, find a way to enthuse about mm-hmm. uh, Russian culture 
Russian table culture the way they could about Russian music or ballet or literature or whatever it might be. And this idea that, you know, it's potatoes, potatoes, potatoes. Um, (laughs) They didn't really plant potatoes until the late 19th century. That's true. Yeah. I I used to be a tour guide in Russia. And I remember my um, tourists saying to me once, this food is really horrible. And there's just so much of it. Yes, <laughs> because we would have these very large meals at these in tourist hotels, um, and there would be a great deal of it, and it was pretty horrible. But all of that has changed, hasn't it? Um, things are really different today. It's extraordinary. So I live in a small town in the Berkshires that you know very well. I do. <laughs> and I can't, I have to travel to find decent food. There is not a good grocery store nearby. And then I go to Moscow and I'm blown away by the grocery stores that I want to do my grocery shopping there. So, or even above the Arctic Circle, um, the access to beautiful food. Well, they have incredible markets Mm. and the fish that they pull from the White Sea is some of the best I've ever had in my life. The waters Mm. are, are so cold and the fish is so clean tasting. Mm-hmm. And um, there, in the summertime, there are extraordinary berries, as I mentioned mm-hmm. before. And the surprising thing, I think, for listeners or for those who read the cookbook, is that this ostensibly barren land, you know, it, it's tundra there. It mm-hmm. has amazing riches in the ground, <laughs> And because the sun shines for 24 hours during the summer, even though it's a short growing season, the herbs that they grow take on extraordinarily intense flavor and are every bit as good as the herbs you might get from the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. because they have uh, all of this uh, sunlight that they're absorbing and nutrients. So it's quite lush in the summertime. And then those uh, products um, from kitchen gardens or from the marketplace are put up into preserves that last throughout the winter. Mm-hmm. And are they, and, and the last time I was in Russia, it was very much using all those preserves in the cooking of like fresh meat and fish, but, but bringing those flavors in. Um, so you mentioned um, the berries, there's a lot of like lingonberry and, and some, um, what are the chornum smarodene? Yeah, like black currant. Yeah, um, I, I find those flavors are really creeping into dishes um, to complement meat and fish and vegetables. Yes, did you, did you find again, that? Again, they have well? that that tang. They give mm-hmm. a kind of brightness to things that would otherwise be bland. And you, from the book, it seems like you were there during winter. Um, Yeah, winter and summer. I mean, first I was there in the summer, and Mm -hmm. I thought, well, this isn't really Russia. (laughs) I have to go back in February and uh, experience it. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And what surprised you the most about um, the journey, the journeys? Oh, what surprised me the most? I think um, it, it sounds contradictory, but I would say the the modernism that i experienced there in certain restaurants the sophistication 
the um, au courantness, if you can mm. <laughs> uh, use that as a word, um, really being aware of uh, international trends in cooking and taking Russian ingredients and these really basic Russian flavors and turning them into something else. Um, an example that I actually put into the cookbook because it was so wonderful is a dish I tasted at a Moscow restaurant called Bjorn. Oh, I love Bjorn. Yeah, isn't it great? That's a great restaurant. So they had something on the menu uh, for dessert that was called uh, last year's apples. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> last year's apples. Could you please explain what that is? They said, well, it, it's not really from last year. It's just they, they look wizened. They look shriveled mm. as though they have been sitting around. So it turns out that what they do is they um, soak the apples in buttermilk, which is a quick way to sort of both plump them and uh, wizen them a little bit. There's this wonderful Russian preparation called machinia, which is brining. It's not quite um, as intense as fermenting, but mm -hmm. they often serve apples that way. And it also recalls apples that have undergone this process. But then what they did was make a, um, they cored the apples, made a caramel sauce, bake the apples, turn them upside down, the caramel sauce spills out over the apples and they serve it with puffed buckwheat on the side. So you have the taste of the apples and the buckwheat, which are quintessential, but then mm. you have this lush caramel sauce and it's just a beautiful presentation. So there's a modern sensibility um, and I found that in the far north as well. But at mm -hmm. the same time, there are these villages where people are still using the old Russian masonry stoves that uh, really defined the nature of Russian cuisine because you, uh, one thing that Russia never suffered from was a lack of fuel because mm. the forests were very abundant in the north. So they always had lots of wood to heat these big stoves that heated the cottages and also were used for cooking. So when it was really hot, you'd put the, the bread in or the pies. And then as the temperature fell, you'd start braising things, making porridges. And uh, they would also make blini, which are the Russian mm -hmm. pancakes. Originally, those were made in the oven and not on the stovetop. And mm -hmm. we found that many people were still using these to cook. Mm -hmm. um, they might have had a stovetop, but they still tended to use the Russian stove because the results are so much more delicious. <laughs> there's a there's a restaurant in Moscow that's on like the 38th floor of some skyscraper where they are using this method as well. Oh, it's oh, very, crap. very. Yes. Yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> But I suppose, you know, this is the, the entire cuisine is based on this method of cooking. Um, yeah. So. And, and what's old is new again, that sort That's of idea. True. Now, uh, to what extent is that um, connected to what our listeners may not know is that um, in 2014, there was this slightly baffling sanctions imposed <laughs> by the Russian government, um, which prohibited uh, the import of any meat or fish, dairy, chocolate, I think preserved uh, 
meter fish from the EU, the USA, Canada, Norway, Japan, and Australia. I was living in Russia then, and it was a scramble um, because suddenly we didn't have whole shelves of products we were we were used to using. <clears throat> but in a very quick time, I think that the the food industry in the the domestic food industry really stepped up. Um, and I'm interested to see how how that's faring now. Yeah, so that's one of the most interesting things I discovered, and another reason that I wanted to write this book, because those sanctions jump-started an artisanal movement mm -hmm. that was perhaps nascent. It was beginning, but it really meant that people felt desperate for good cheese <laughs> that they've gotten used to. So mm -hmm. if you go to a, a grocery store or a market, even in the far north, you see domestic gouda, you see domestic feta, you see domestic brie. And at first I was skeptical, like, how could they be doing this? You know, you have to get the best brie from France and all that. Mm -hmm. But it's really, really good. Um, and the case of cheese is particularly interesting because Russians never had a tradition of making aged cheeses. Mm -hmm. They always made tvarok, which is the fresh uh, ricotta-like cheese, um, and it's exquisite, but they didn't really age their cheeses. So it's not as though they had a history to return to and investigate. And they also started thinking about uh, questions of ecology and mm -hmm. where the food was coming from, what they were growing, a greater consciousness of healthfulness there. Mm -hmm. So they're returning to older whole grains that maybe had been overlooked for a while, such as spelt, which uh, grew quite well in the far north and then mm -hmm. was kind of forgotten. So, Interesting. Yes, the, the sanctions, uh, in a certain way, something positive came out of them. And I think that the food industry is one of the few that have um, actually thrived under the sanctions. I mean, other industries are really kind of struggling, but the, the food is just going from strength to strength, it seems, which is really, really heartening, I think. Yeah. And I was just in the Arctic last week. Um, mm. And a friend of mine gave me a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc that was made on the Taman Peninsula in southern <laughs> Russia. Um, and because uh, I, she knew I probably wouldn't want a Crimean wine. <laughs> so, uh, she said, this is from Taman Peninsula, and I haven't tasted it yet. I'm, I'm waiting for the right occasion to open it, but she swears it's really good. So it will be interesting to, it to taste be. it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, of course. And, and I think, I think Georgian wine is really coming back. Moldovan wine is winning awards. So it's all, it's all, it's all good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, and these are ancient, <laughs> ancient industries. Um, tell me, Dara, for, for listeners who are intrigued, but intimidated, is Russian cuisine easy to to prepare? Um, your book makes it seem very easy, but um, you know the kulibaka, for example, even if you pare it down to a few hours, that's still kind of a challenge. Um, I'd say that if you're not comfortable working with dough, then you probably mm -hmm. don't want to bake a savory pie. But mm -hmm. the dough in that one is this beautiful, uh, very easily made 
one, it's not complicated. It's not like when um, the French adopted Kulibiaka into their cuisine and called it Kulibiak. It got mm-hmm. a puff pastry, you know, which is quite <laughs> formidable to make. Um, so it, it's a dough that's very workable and not hard. And there are a bunch of different steps, but none of them are technically challenging. Mm-hmm. But there are also lots of really easy recipes. And part of this reflects my own life now. Uh, I love to cook, but I don't spend days and days and days on a recipe mm-hmm. as I did when I was much younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I have a recipe. One of my favorites in the book is for 20-minute pickles. Mm. <laughs> if you don't want to get pickles and go through the whole process of pickling them in the traditional way, all you do is is take those little Persian cucumbers mm-hmm. that you get in the store, cut them into quarters, stick them into a Ziploc bag um, with some minced garlic, some dill, some salt, and the secret ingredient, a tablespoon of vodka. Oh, there you go. <laughs> sort of uh, massage it just so everything's well distributed. Leave it on the counter for 20 minutes good to chill it for 20 more minutes. And the pickles are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like mushroom, dried mushroom and barley soup that mm-hmm. anyone can make. You, it, It's very, very basic. So there are a lot of simple recipes. Well, and I think um, if people know uh, elements of Russian cuisine, the soups kind of spring to, to people's mind. And, and, and in this time of year, they're particularly comforting and and very satisfying, I think. Yeah, the revelation for me was, um, I have always been someone who has like borscht more than xi, which is the Mm -hmm. cabbage soup. Right. And borscht is uh, historically Ukrainian. It's not Mm -hmm. Russian, although it's become uh, an established part of Russian cuisine. But I felt that because I'm talking about elemental flavors, I had to have the cabbage soup as well. And I discovered something that is not the so-called lazy cabbage soup <laughs> that you make with fresh cabbage, but the um, the 24-hour cabbage soup that you make with sauerkraut. Mm. And you actually braise the sauerkraut in the oven. Uh, so it doesn't take any skill. You just stick it in the oven and it caramelizes. Mm, and you lovely. use that as the basis of the soup, and it's just extraordinary. Um, I think so cabbage soup converted. Yeah, cabbage soup is one of those things where it can be so awful and watery and bland and tasteless, or it can be so rich and fantastic and satisfying. It sounds like you found the path to the rich and satisfying. I did. So that'll be my next. That'll okay. be my next <laughs> recipe that I try from your book. Um, I, I wonder if you can speak a little bit about where you think Russian cuisine is heading. I mean, if you had a crystal ball, um, what do you see in the next 10 years? Oh, I'm never good at predictions. They always mm-hmm. fail. Um, but I would say that um, for a while after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was this genuine hunger, not just literal, but also metaphorical for things that came in from outside. So whether it was American fast food or the sushi we talked about or Mm. Italian restaurants or whatever, they just wanted a taste of things that had been forbidden for so long. 
or unavailable, if not forbidden. And now there really is this revival of Russian food and a pride in the Russian past that Mm -hmm. uh, I guess some people could see as a kind of nationalism. But I think it goes deeper than that. It's recognizing what is intrinsic to um, the Russian land and to the Russian palate and really finding ways to celebrate that. So I'd say that in terms of restaurant culture, um, it will continue to attract really talented chefs. Uh, It's no longer considered déclassé, I guess would be (laughs) the word to you know, be a a cook, Um, you can really highlight your talents and and share them with people. But Mm -hmm. younger people are also finding ways to connect with the land and uh, do interesting things with homegrown, uh, homemade preserves, and they package them really beautifully now, Mm. uh, using burlap, for instance, on the tops of um, jars of jam. And mm-hmm. just really uh, interesting, creative products that they're making. And what about the role of um, the former Soviet, the cuisines of the former Soviet Republic, which to, seem to be an integral part of the Russian cuisine, um, in a way that kind of trans transmits. I don't, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Kind of goes beyond politics. Um, you know, Russia yeah, doesn't transcends. have the easiest transcends. transcends. There you go. Um, <laughs> Russia doesn't have the easiest relationship with Georgia, for example, but a Russian will happily sit down and eat hashipuri all day long. Yes. Um, and are, are, you, are you seeing that as, as, as a constant? I think it's constant. I think everyone will always love Georgian food. One mm-hmm. of the things that struck me when we went to a, a goat farm outside of Murmansk, um, they made uh, blinchiki, which are uh, thin pancakes, and they rolled them up with uh, fresh goat cheese inside and then Mm. fried them. So they're like um, blintzes that Mm -hmm. we would know in the States. And that was very Russian. And that was one plate that they brought out. And then the next plate they brought out was an Ossetian pie. Oh, lovely. (laughs) And so there it was, you know, above Mm -hmm. 200 miles above the Arctic Circle. And it was just divine. Mm-hmm. So there is a way in which the foods of the former republics are being incorporated. And I think in perhaps an even more um, organic way, because mm-hmm. there is more movement of peoples, you know, from those places um, and moving to different parts of Russia. Mm, fantastic. Well, good luck to them. That's what I say. <laughs> um, tell us what is next for you. Um, you've produced this marvelous um, cookbook. You're off on a book tour, but what what projects are looming in the future? Well, I'm involved in a project that is very surprising to me and mm. quite lovely. Uh, there is an organization in New York City called YIVO, which is mm. the Yiddish Scientific Research Institute. And outside of Vilnius, it has the largest collection of documents relating to uh, Jews in Eastern European. Uh, it has the largest collection of documents relating to Eastern European Jewish life. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to become the lead scholar 
on an online course that we're developing on Ashkenazi food. Oh, fantastic. And this was a real surprise to me. Uh, I grew up in a Jewish household and I never really, um, I mean, I, I ate some traditional foods, but it hasn't ever been a part of my food identity, I guess you could say. Hmm. So I've been uh, immersing myself in it, uh, comparing it to Russian Food. Mm -hmm. And there are so many overlaps, of course, because many Russian Jews, like my own grandparents, came to this country and trying to tease out some of the differences. So uh, what I love about this is that um, in addition to creating a course, I'm also taking a deep dive into something I didn't know that much about. And it's fascinating. And it seems that food is academia. Uh, food is academia. Um, <laughs> that, that you are you are pursuing your love for food in an oh, academic uh, format. Um, it's not so academic mm. because it's online, mm. and uh, what we're doing is inviting in a lot of guest lectures. So some of them are super academics, but others are chefs. Uh, we mm. have uh, cooking demos. So Joan Nathan, who's very well known, oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. Jeffrey Yaskowitz and Liz Alpern, who do Gefilteria. Leah mm -hmm. Koenig, Adina Sussman, like a lot of big names in uh, Jewish cookery are uh, appearing and doing demos. And there's a lot of archival material. So there will be object lessons as well. So it's meant to be accessible. And I always uh, bristle slightly at the word academic, which can have uh, a negative connotation as being oh, valid. Uh -huh. And this is, but this sounds very, this sounds very dynamic and interesting, and and incredibly relevant um, to the food scene right now. I hope so. So it it should launch uh, later in the spring. And do you hope to turn that into another book, or um, are you letting it take you? Are you leaning into it? I'm leaning into it. I don't think that it would become another book, but who knows? Mm -hmm. I I like when things are serendipitous rather than mm -hmm. trying to um, channel my my life in a certain way. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> well, that is about all the time we have. But um, before we go, um, can you tell listeners where they can find out more about you and, and your work? And I assume that um, Beyond the North Wind is available wherever very good books are sold. Yes, it's available <laughs> all over. Um, uh -huh. And so you can go to my website, which is simply Dara Goldstein. That's D-A-R-R-A. G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N.com. Um, mm -hmm. And there, there's lots of information about my past projects, my thoughts on various things. Um, I'm on Instagram at Dara.Goldstein and Twitter at Dara underscore Goldstein. That's great. And we'll link uh, all those in, in the notes uh, for this program. Dara, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us uh, about your new book and best wishes on the tour and with the, all your projects going forward. Jennifer, thank you. It's always so great to talk to you. And, and, and you. Uh, that's all we have time for today, listeners, but um, do take a look at Beyond the North Wind. Uh, I've your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva, here with Dara Goldstein. Until next time. <laughs>